actually, and ask them to come up together and to pray for Aid as he prepares to preach this morning. I'm sure they don't mind doing that. They love to pray. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for this man, our pastor, and uh, he is a great teacher, Lord, of your word, and I thank you for what you put in his heart this morning, and I pray that we would all be receptive to what he's going to say, or what you're going to say through him. I pray that nothing would distract us from hearing your word. Amen. Amen. Yeah, Lord, um, we thank you for this time that we can come and uh, learn more from you um, without fear of oppression. Lord... We thank you for aid. Um, we thank you for the time that he's put into uh, tying this, this preaching series up. And um, yeah, we just, we, we long to hear from you, Lord, and we are open, our hearts and our minds are open to you. Um, so be blessed. Amen. 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 Thanks, guys. Phil, I've set myself up a bit today, but by saying that I'm going to seamlessly move from wrapping up a preaching series into Advent, and then getting kind people like that to pray for you, they, where they say, you know, thank you for the, this, this great preacher, it kind of, it puts the pressure on, doesn't it, when people give these kind words, but there you go, we're getting closer to Christmas, so I thought I'd start with a joke, I don't normally do that, I feel like I let you all down a little bit in that way. Because uh, if you're going to be a great preacher, you've got to start with a good joke. And hopefully, we'll all be snorting with laughter. Okay, ready? I saw this online, I thought it was quite funny. It seems that some scientists got together one day and decided that their scientific efforts to improve our world were so successful that God was no longer needed on Earth. One of those scientists was then chosen to break the news to God directly. The next day, that scientist walked up to God and said, God, we've decided that we no longer need you. We scientists are at the point of being able to clone people and do so many other miraculous things. So why don't you just go on and get lost? God listened to this man very patiently until he'd finished. And then God said, very well, how about this? Let's have a man-making contest. To that, the scientist replied, okay, great, let's do it. But God added, now, we're going to do this in the same way as I created Adam long ago. Hearing that, the scientist said, sure, not a problem. To begin the contest, the scientist bent down and grabbed a big handful of dirt for himself. Amazed, God stared at the scientist and said, no, 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 you don't understand. You've got to get your own dirt. <laughs> hey! Oh. I love it. Everything comes from him in the end. When you trace it back far enough. Now we're doing, we're finishing our devoted series, and this devoted series has come about from the Acts two passage where it says the disciples were devoted. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to breaking of bread and to the apostles' teaching. And so for this whole term, we've been focused on the apostles' teaching in different ways, which of course is quite a broad subject. The apostles' teaching, you can kind of go anywhere in the New Testament with that. 
um, and, and draw some things out. And we've looked at some of the books of the New Testament and maybe some of the passages that we haven't really focused on too much. It's been great to, to delve into some fresh material, which has been really good. And also we've tried to look for threads that run through the apostolic teaching. Things that were important to the apostles or things that the apostles exemplified. That's my littlest daughter there. She's forgotten her lunch. <laughs> Bless her. There you go. And uh, as part of this preaching series, we, I really felt that we were in a bit of an apostolic season. It always sounds a bit American to say we're entering an apostolic season. But in prayer, that's kind of what I felt was going on. I felt that like there was some, God wanted to build bridges into our community. And he wanted to expand our number. He wants new people to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I believe he does want to do that. I believe he wants to bring people into this wonderful place, this wonderful community of God, where people can find out who they truly are in him. And start having to work so hard to be good enough and to find themselves in the heart of God and learn how to grow and to love themselves through his eyes. It's, it's so important. And I believe that the Lord wants us to be doing that at this time. And there, it's not about us trying harder. It's about us saying yes to what God wants to do because that's his mission and he wants to include us in it. And so that's what this season has been about, and I, that will spill over into next year. Not that we will necessarily carry on with the same preaching program, but I believe that same spirit of wanting to, to, to engage with God in an apostolic season, to say, Lord, let us take new ground for the kingdom, and let us reach more people. I believe that's going to continue. But we are also heading into Advent, and so I want to I look at one aspect of the apostolic teaching, which I believe kind of spans both camps. So I've called this one small. And the reason why we're looking, I've called it small is because I believe that God loves to work on really small scales, or at least start incredibly small. There is something about God that delights in the things that we often find insignificant but they're not insignificant to God. God can do the big and wonderful things. He can do the big and miraculous things. He can, he can do creation and the cosmos. You know, he can do big, wonderful miracles, massive feats of, uh, of achievement. He can change nations. He can shift the power around on the earth. He can do the big and, and mighty things. He can part the seas and let a whole community of people walk through them. He can do that. But he can also do the small things amazingly well. I remember when I was a student doing my A-levels, I did A-level biology. And one of the things that I loved about A-level biology was, was the, the time we spent focusing on the cellular world. Just the world of cells. It's amazing what goes on in there. I remember, it was like, when I was learning about it, it's like, there's these tiny little communities where there's so much going on, there's so much kind of toing and froing, and there's so much processing that happens in every single cell, and yet we've got millions of these things. There is so much life going on in my body, and I found myself almost beginning to worship as I was learning about the structure of cells, which is strange, because I hadn't really come through to faith that strongly yet at that point when I first started. But I just find, I found it miraculous that uh, right now there is so much happening. I, I am firing on so many cylinders right now just to be able to speak to you, to be able to stand here 
There is so much going on. Our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. I remember phagocytosis. Do you remember? Anyone know about phagocytosis? It's, it's, it's um, I've got to try and explain it now. <laughs> Should have swatted up. It's where when you've got a, a, a bacteria or a particle in your body that is not supposed to be there, you've got cells that will literally come and envelop that, that antigen. Is it an antigen? Somebody's saying yes. Yes. Um, so something that's not supposed to be there, it, it envelops it. And, and these little tiny receptors kind of latch onto it until it envelops it into the middle of this phagocyte. And then what it does is it slowly breaks it down and digests it and then redistributes all the components of that thing to make use of them. That's happening in your blood all the time. Right now that's happening. I bet it's happening quite a lot because there's so many viruses around this time of year. <laughs> but that's happening. And so I've got these little guys in me that are like little patrol troops that are flowing around my blood trying to keep me safe. And that's happening all the time. That's all happening in the, in the sort of tiny world. And then you go even smaller into quantum mechanics. I'm not even going to pretend. <laughs> so I've done a pretty feeble job of, of A-level biology, so let's just leave quantum mechanics. But all I do know about it is when you talk to a, a quantum physicist, they will say that the smaller you get, the smaller you look into the atomic world, the more strange and crazy things become, and the more miraculous things become. And they start looking for God particles, um, because they can't explain stuff. They can't explain how one particle can start here and end up over there. Uh, and they can, it's, just, it's just amazing. And it's like God is moving stuff around on a molecular level in, in ways that baffle the scientists. God loves to work small on very small scales. Oh, thanks, Fraser. Somebody's literally got my back. That's wonderful. It's amazing. And God loves to build from very small components. You know, our bodies are built from these small components. Everything we know is built from these amazing, miraculous, small components. He loves to build. He loves, you know, you see it in creation, starting with nothing. God created out of nothing. He spoke and things were formed. He also said he was going to build his kingdom. And that one day his glory was going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. One day... His government would just, it says the increase of his government would be no end. It's just going to expand and expand and expand. We're going to see it grow over the earth. He said one day every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is a growth to it. There is a growth to it. But you know what he also said? It begins like a mustard seed. You know? It begins like the most small, insignificant seed that you could have in the palm of your hand. That's how it begins. So he loves to grow extraordinary things from the small. That's Mark 4, 31, if you're interested in reading about the mustard seed. So it is with us and with how he deals with us in our lives. Every single one of us is invested with the purposes of God. But every single one of us has to start small with God. It's very, very rare that you see God plant enormous purposes on, onto us without some kind of journey into those purposes where we've learned how to be faithful with the small things. We're going to look at Hebrews. Let's open our Bibles at Hebrews and chapter 11. 
Hebrews chapter 11 and from verse 32. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength, and they became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. I love it. We've been recently on Third Sundays, we've been looking at some of these characters. Uh, remember Gideon? Gideon and Midian. Remember that? Fraser's rap. Do you remember that? It's getting down with the kids. Love it. We've been looking at how God uses these people. And some of these characters are amazing. I mean, Gideon, he managed to rout this enormous army of Midian. I mean, they were just devouring like locusts all the territory around them. And with 300 men, he managed to send them packing. And how did he start? The weakest man of the weakest clan. He was there hiding in his wine press. And God sowed one seed into his life that said, you are a mighty warrior. I, and I know that at that point he did not feel like a mighty warrior. But he did receive that word from God. And he just acted upon it in a way that he knew how. And sure enough, by the end of the story, he was the mighty warrior. So you've got some amazing people in here. Uh, you've got two of my favourites, uh, David and Samuel. Now Samuel came first. The mighty prophet Samuel. Such a man of integrity. A man that was so in tune with the voice of God. And saw Israel move, transition into this time of, of its, its golden age, if you like, where the, the monarchy was true and faithful to God. This guy Samuel, how did it start? How did Samuel's story start? It started with a couple that were struggling with fertility issues. And Hannah came into the temple and she threw herself down before God and she said, Lord, if you will just give me a son, I make a vow this day, I will give him back to you. And God blessed Hannah with a son, and she named him Samuel. And sure enough, when he was old enough, she took him to the temple. And she said, I dedicate this boy to you. I'm giving him to the temple to the, for the service of God. So it started with a vow. And then it started with uh, God giving her a child, which was wonderful, and then a fulfilled promise. And then from that point, what comes next? How does Samuel then begin to relate to God? It was a whisper in the night, nothing more. Samuel. And he goes to speak to Eli. And Eli eventually gives him some wise advice. And says, it's, it's the Lord speaking to you. Just say, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. And from that point, he realized that he was a man who was tuning into the voice of God. And he was maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 years old. But that set the trajectory of his life. And because of that small, humble whisper in the night, he became the mighty prophet Samuel. As he learned to understand and tune in with God's life. Look at David. How did that start? That started with the prophet Samuel going to anoint the next king and Jesse, David's father, not even bothering to fetch him from the field because he was so insignificant. It was only when they exhausted all the options that he suddenly had an afterthought. Oh yeah, then there's David who's in the field. He's barely worth going to fetch. They fetched David and God says, this is the one. He was the most insignificant person in his family. And then what happens after that? 
years of shepherding. Having been anointed as king, he's then got to go back to the fields. He's there, he's left chasing off wolves again, passing time, listening to the bells around their necks, wondering what was all that about. And he's got to do that until the Goliath story comes. So, so many of God's great plans, you know, the biggest plans, they start so small, often with a whisper. It's extraordinary. And yet, the key in these verses in Hebrews, it says their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle. They put whole armies to flight. They knew they were weak. God loves to use the weak and the small and to invest the weak and small things of this world with his purposes. So let's go to the Apostles' teaching. I want to look first at the ways that the Apostles taught with their lives, the the story of the Apostles. So let's look at this first one in Acts 10. I'm just, just for the sake of time, I'm just going to sort of paraphrase it. This is a moment in the church where God is about to do something huge. He's about to take this incredible message of salvation from the Jewish world and to spill it over from the Jewish world into the Gentile world. He's about to incorporate the whole world in the purposes of his redemption. Okay, This is, this is a defining moment in the church. And what happens is Peter goes to uh, a guy called Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile, he was a Roman centurion, who had gathered all of his, his Gentile friends in a room And Peter has the opportunity to begin to declare the things of Jesus. And while he's declaring the things of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes, falls on all of them. They're all baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they are incorporated into the church like phagocytosis. (laughs) And they're brought in. It's amazing. How does it begin? It begins with Peter upon a roof. He's a big guy. He's hungry. And he has... A daydream, essentially, a vision from God, which he doesn't understand. That's how this amazing, massive purpose begins. Begins on a roof with a daydream, with a hungry man. How easy would it be to explain that away? I mean, I know my mental state alters slightly when I'm hungry. Anyone else become a bit irritable? Yeah, my my kids know when Dad's hungry. Um... It would have been very easy for him to... I mean, the, the, the vision he had was about food. It was about killing stuff and eating it. Um, but it was in this vision, in a very pictorial way, God was saying, actually, that which you've considered to be unclean, no longer consider that to be unclean, because I've declared it clean and acceptable for me. And it was only much, much later that he understood what that vision meant. But what he had to do is he had to act upon the little bit that he had. It even says in Acts 10 that he was puzzling over it. He was struggling. He hadn't got a clue, really, what this dream meant. But thankfully, the Holy Spirit also said, there's some people coming to fetch you, and you've got to go with them. And so he was able to take his first steps towards understanding what God was about to say to him. So this huge spill-out of the purposes of God, incorporating a whole new bunch of people, the gospel spreading further, started with a dream on a rooftop. There was another point. This is in Acts 16, where the same is about to happen. Paul is on his missionary journey. 
And God wants Paul to bring the gospel into Europe. He wants, to, he wants to include Europe and the Western world in this amazing thing called the church. And at this point, it's only sort of been in Middle Eastern territories. But he wants it to spill over right across the Roman world, right across Europe, and then ultimately, everything we know in the church of the West today began at this point in Acts 16. So he's tried to go into Asia Minor, he's tried to go into Bithynia, he's tried to go into all these provinces of the ancient world. And the Holy Spirit has stopped him. We don't even know quite how the Holy Spirit has stopped him, but he's prevented from going into those places. Somehow those doors were closed in his face. And so they, were, they ended up at the port of Troas, saying, God, where do you want us to go? They were, they were like a, a missionary team with no destination. So they were there just waiting, waiting on God, what, what next? And I don't know how long they were waiting there for. But one night, Paul has a dream. And it's quite a random dream. It's of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Doesn't say more than that. So in their morning devotions, I imagine they met as a team to sort of connect with each other and to praise the Lord and maybe look at a bit of scripture and encourage each other as you tend to do when you go out to share the gospel in these ways. I can imagine Paul saying, well, uh, I had a dream last night. And they say, okay, let's hear it. Well, it was just a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And I can imagine by the end of that little meeting, they said, let's just do it. Let's just buy some tickets. Let's go. This, we haven't got any better ideas. This may be from God. And they just sense, yeah, we think this is from the Lord. So they bought some tickets and they head over to Macedonia. The place they landed in is a place called Philippi. And then in Philippi, there's no synagogue. So they go to the place where a lot of people meet, which is by the river. And they meet a few Jews and they become interested in this story of Jesus and this message of salvation. One woman in particular, a woman called Lydia, who was a wealthy businesswoman, gets very excited straight away, really receptive to the gospel, and gives her life to Christ and is just sold out for Jesus. So, so one person enters the kingdom straight away. And this little church begins to form. There was a little slave girl that had an evil spirit that would tell people's fortunes. Whenever she saw Paul, she would say, these men are trying to declare the things of God to you. And uh, eventually, Paul gets a bit annoyed with this, even though this slave girl was telling the truth. And he says, right, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And this evil spirit leaves her, and of course her owners lose their profit. They then create uproar, and Paul ends up in prison. Whilst he's in prison, then Paul and Silas are singing praise to God. In the prison, there's a massive earthquake, and the jailer's about to kill himself because he thinks all of the prisoners have escaped. So then Paul says, don't worry, calm yourself, don't commit suicide today, we're all still here. So the jailer is so moved by what he's heard them singing in the cells and how they haven't run away, he says, what must I do to be saved? Whoever this God is of yours, I want to follow this God. So the jailer gets saved, along with all his family, and this new little church begins in the West. So it comprises of a, a healed demoniac slave girl, a wealthy businesswoman, a bunch of people they met by the river, a very rough and ready jailer, and his family. That's the first church. That's what the first European church looked like. And that was, it was born in Philippi. The church is very much like that today. Just look around the room. I don't know which category you put yourselves in. Hopefully most of you just the people he met by the river. Um, 
But yeah, we're, we haven't changed that much. But that's how it began to spill out. And so everything you see in the, you know, the powerful American church and everything right across Europe began in Philippi in that way. How did it begin? With a dream in Troas of just Paul sensing God might be doing something because he, somebody in his dream had said, come over and help us. It's not exactly a massive blueprint, is it, of what God was about to do. But Paul acted on the small thing. Absolutely amazing. Began with Paul's dream, small, yet the reason that the gospel first entered Europe. Turn with me to Romans and chapter 4. And what I want to ask from this passage, Romans chapter 4 and verse 17, is what does God like to do? Romans chapter 4 and verse 17, halfway through, it says, Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. What does God like to do? He loves to bring the dead back to life and he loves to create the new things out of nothing. That was the God that Abraham believed in and he was the father of faith. Why does God love to do that? I believe God loves to create something out of nothing because only he can do those things. They demonstrate who he is. They reveal his nature. When he acts beyond our human capabilities, it, everything that happens then points back to God and he's able to show us something of what he's like. It's a wonderful way that he loves to work. Flick over a few pages to 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. Verse 26. Okay, and the question we're asking of this is, who is God looking for? So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and from verse 26. Remember, my dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy, when God called you. Is that right? I'm not, I'm not just trying to insult you this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely right. Yeah, few of you were wise in the world's eyes or, or powerful or wealthy when God called you. That's true of us all. Instead, God chose the, thing, the things of the, the world. Sorry, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And God chose those things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose those things despised by the world, those things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. So who is God looking for? You can answer this question. <laughs> who is God looking for? What kind of person? The weak? The foolish? Anymore? Lowly? Humble? Yeah. Those who don't consider themselves to be noble at all. People who reveal his nature. People who are perfectly positioned to reveal what God is doing and not what we are doing. 
He loves to create something out of nothing. He loves to take the small and the powerless and the insignificant and to make, it, make significant things come about with tiny little prompts with those insignificant things. In small little ways, God begins to work in the insignificant things. And as those insignificant things begin to move at God's prompts, God can do wonderful things that only he can do through people. It's an amazing thing. This leads us effortlessly. Did you see what I did there? Effortlessly onto the nativity of God. The greatest turning point in history began with a young teenager from an average Nazarene family. This is the biggest plan that God was ever going to unleash upon the earth. This is the plan of the complete redemption of humanity. This is the, the biggest turning point in all of history. The cross and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the kingdom, the birth of the church, and the consummation of all things are all wrapped up in this plan. And how does God begin this plan? He goes to a very obscure town in Israel. I mean, Nazareth is, is a backwater. It's not a lot goes on there. At a time in history when it, there was so much unrest, people were really poor. They were struggling under Roman oppression trying to pay their taxes. There was a lot of um, instability politically. You didn't know what was going to go on from one month to the next. And God goes to a teenage girl from an average family in a backwater town to begin his master plan. That is starting small. That is starting incredibly small. And I love that. There's something about who Mary is, even before she says yes, that en encapsulates all of us. She was a nobody. She was an ordinary girl. If we've got any Catholics here, I'm not trying to be irreverent. But she, she was an ordinary girl. In, in every way, apart from one way, which is she had an ability to trust God beyond what most of us could do. She was a young woman of extraordinary faith. And she trusted the Lord. It's an amazing thing. Think of it this way. A full and comprehensive restoration plan for the cosmos of humanity. Invested in a frail newborn baby. That is very small. I, I still think it's a miracle. That... A couple of cells can just reproduce and reproduce and reproduce and then you have this amazing little embryo and a fetus and it becomes this baby and then you get to welcome this little one. I'm going to get to do that in May. Yeah. Welcome my next little baby coming into the world. And it is just, I, I still find, when I'm, I'm on my number four. I feel like I'm sort of a bit down the road on the whole having babies business. But I'm on the fourth child and I find it amazing. Every time I think about this little life that's being formed in there, I find it amazing. But it, I can't think of anything more, more vulnerable and weak and totally dependent as an embryo, as an unborn baby. You change their environment just a little bit and they're not going to cope. 
you know? It's so fragile. Mum has to be quite looked after. She can't have any major falls. There's some illnesses she can have which would be disastrous for the baby. And it's all a time of, of being very precious and, and trying, to, trying to take a lot of care when there's pregnancy around. What a way to start your master plan with just the fragility of pregnancy. It's just an extraordinary thing that God would be willing to risk it all. And when the baby's born and just the, the humble lowliness of it, the smallness of, of that stinking stable and just how, how weak and vulnerable they were in that place and yet God was there and it was all alright. And then the bounty that was put on that boy's head and they had to run like refugees to Egypt. Refugees have been in the mind quite a lot recently, right? And you think, oh, I just hope they've got somewhere to sleep tonight. I hope the people around them are kind. I hope that human compassion outweighs some of the, the trauma that they've run from. And thank God that that was the case for them. I don't know how many nights they slept in the open. I don't know how many nights they were trying to conceal that they had a baby at all because they felt scared and vulnerable about the people around them. But they had to flee to Egypt. And a lot of babies in Bethlehem were destroyed. I'm not sure, in the middle of all that feeding and winding and changing nappies, that that master plan of God felt very real for Mary and for Joseph. God had started so small and seemingly so insignificant. This family were not becoming very significant very quickly. It took a very, very long time before Jesus suddenly started to rise as this significant figure in Israel. It started with one girl that was willing to take God at his word. And the message that I want to bring out is that God loves to invest huge potential in small things. You may not even be able to see the word small there because it's quite small. He loves to do it. It brings God such incredible delight when at the small stages we are willing to trust him. Because Mary hadn't seen what was coming. She had, she had an idea. The angel had given her some idea. Anna and Simeon had given her some idea. The shepherds and the wise men had given her some idea. And these were enough to keep her going. But she hadn't seen where the whole thing was going. But it was enough to act. It was enough to, to put her life at stake and to say yes to something that she knew was going to be costly to her. And that brought God tremendous delight. She was favoured above all women in that way. There's a wonderful verse in Zechariah. So if you could turn to Zechariah in chapter 4. It's at the end, right at the end of the Old Testament, if you're not sure where Zechariah is. <coughs> So it'll be a familiar verse for some of you. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10. It says this. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. To see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. I guess that needs a bit of explanation. This was at a point where the Israelites had, had returned from exile in Babylon. 
And there was plans to rebuild the temple of God because it had been completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So they're standing at this point where the temple is in ruins. All they can see is foundations. And there's such a long way to go. And God says through the prophet Zechariah, don't despise this day of small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices. He takes great pleasure. He takes delight to see the work begin. See, we often take pleasure in the work coming to an end, right? We love to achieve, to be big achievers. We love to have, have uh, accomplished things. And sometimes some of us, some of us that are a little bit driven or a little bit ambitious, we kind of live in, in unrest until we see that which we put our hands to completed. But God says his delight, he delights us in, in a very special way in the day of small beginnings, when things are about to start. Now, I don't know what it says in your translation about what's in Zerubbabel's hand. What does it say is in his hand? One line. Some translation says capstone. Anyone got capstone? Yeah. Yeah. It's quite difficult to translate. Actually, it could, it, the, probably a, a better translate, translation is plummet stone. And you think, well, what's that? Is it a plumb line or is it a capstone? Those are two very different things. A plumb line is something you measure off, you dangle down, it gives you an exactly uh, vertical line, and then you can measure things off the plumb line. Whereas a capstone is the final stone in the building, which kind of locks it all together and gives it all its shape, right? It's the completion stone, the capstone. So which is it? Is it a plumb line or a capstone? Well, actually, it's both. Apparently, one way that they used to build in the ancient world was to, by scaffolding, suspend the capstone where it was to go, in, in, at the top of the building. They, just, they would place the capstone where it needed to be, and then they'd measure from the capstone where the rest of the building was to fall. So you start with the foundations, and then you put the capstone where it's got to be, and then everything then takes its place in relation to the capstone, and they, they draw a line down from the capstone to the centre of the building with a plumb line, and then you measure and you build the side walls off that in relation to the capstone. So when you get the walls to a certain height, you then have got a perfect shape for the pitch of your roof. You know exactly how you're going to build your rafters. This is my old building life coming in. Um, because you've got your fixed parameters of this building. So this verse is saying, God rejoices when he sees this man Zerubbabel standing amongst the ruins on just rubble and foundations, holding the capstone in his hand, from which every other parameter of the building is going to be measured. So he's standing there, holding the finished product. He's standing there, holding the thing that everything is going to move towards, in his hand, in the place of ruins. And because he's a man of faith, God knows the deal is done. This temple's going to be built. He's got the capstone, he's got the place where he's going to build it, it will be done because this man, Zerubbabel, is, is someone in whose hands God's final plans is safe. Does that make sense? God loves that day. Why? Because it's in the place of faith. Anyone can believe when the roof is going on that God is going to do it. it there are few people that can believe standing there holding just the capstone in amongst the rubble and say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to rebuild this amazing temple. And we're going to do it for God. That's the place of faith. God loves the place of faith. 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But God is looking for people that are going to take him at his word. That when he gives you something small to do, small, seemingly insignificant, because you don't know what's happening down the road. Like Peter, like Paul, they just acted on the tiny bit of information that they had and then God dealt with the rest of it. But they moved by faith. They they stepped out. And God loves those days of small beginnings. What he looks for is trust and obedience. Nothing brings more delight, I believe, to God's heart than trust and obedience. It's a wonderful thing. Oh, I've got a point to ponder. How many of God's powerful plans are rejected or aborted because the small, at the small beginning stage, we decided they were too small or insignificant to pursue? If this is how God loves to work, if this is how God loves to get his will done on the earth, how many of us manage to just abort that plan Somewhere in between sensing that God might be calling us to do something and starting out on actually getting on with it. I think this happens a lot. I think this happens a tremendous amount. I mean, some of the, uh, the, the big moves of God, I've heard on a number of occasions where people have seen tremendous things happen for the Lord in the earth. And the people that, that have been one of the sort of instigators or the catalyst of these moves of God have said, actually, God has revealed to me that I wasn't the first person God called. I wasn't the first person that God has asked to do this. I I think it was Reinhard Bonnke, who was an amazing, amazing guy, who has seen work going on all around the world, massive work in South Africa. I remember hearing him once saying, I was the eighth person God had asked. And this was, this was a venture of distributing literature. It was just distributing Bibles and Christian literature. Um, and it was going to cost hundreds of thousands of pounds. And he didn't have hundreds of thousands of pounds, but he said, okay, God, I'll start printing. And then the money came in. A lot of hundreds of people came to faith through this ministry. But he was the eighth person God had asked. Seven people had pondered it and sort of quietly rejected it in the night. Because that's the thing. No one's ever going to know what God has whispered for you to do unless you tell them. And so it makes it very, very easy just for life to happen. And that idea then becomes a little bit tenuous. What happens is we get distracted, you know, and we get overwhelmed with other things. Other pressures come in, other priorities rise up. And then after a while of procrastination and attending to life, suddenly it becomes a bit less important. And then at some point, often unperceptibly, it we just let it go. And that was something that never came about. And it might be that God has to wait decades to position someone else to be able to ask that same thing to. God has positioned every single one of us uniquely for his purposes. He will work where we are. And it may be that he's been working for a long time to get you where you are because he wants you to do something for him. But it will come as a small invitation to trust and obey. So, What if God wants you to step out in faith into a new career path? What if he wants you to start to act on that idea or that project or that dream that you've been 
ticking over in your minds for the last few years? What if it was as simple as to strike up a conversation with that person at the office about Jesus? Have you been nudged in your heart to talk to somebody? There's somebody that God's got his hand on. Somebody's been highlighted to you that they need to know about Jesus and he's been nudging you just to open that conversation. For all you know, that could have a knock-on effect down the generations that would affect hundreds of people just by having that one conversation. Or maybe he's been nudging you to pray for someone. You may have a part to play in raising up the next apostle that's going to make a huge impact in an area just by praying for someone. It may be something slightly more uncomfortable, like what if God, is, what if God one day told you to go and stand in a certain location and await instructions? That's hard to do that stuff because it just doesn't seem any sense in it. I don't imagine there was an awful lot of sense for Gideon or for Peter or for anything like that. But the Bible's full of these strange little requests that people either choose to obey or not to. And like someone like Peter, we've got to learn how just to act on the little things. And it, just do it anyway. Just do it anyway. Just, it might not be God, but if it is, we might just see something wonderful happen. You know, Peter had learned that he could get down off that roof and go and follow these people and go and preach to Gentiles because he'd already said yes to Jesus when Jesus said, let down your nets. Or throw your fishing line in. Or go and distribute that bread amongst these people. I know it's only a little bit, but do it. Or come with me. He learned how to just come with Jesus because often when he said, come with me, you know, a little girl would be raised from the dead or he'd see Jesus transfigured on a mountain or something. He'd learned how to respond to the little prompts and invitations of Jesus. And he'd learned that when he does that, there is an opportunity to see the kingdom come and expand in the most tremendous way. All of our heroes of faith began small. None of them had much to go on at the beginning. So let's get personal about this. God will have been speaking to every single person in this room. He will have. He'll have been giving you little prompts, little ideas, little ways forward, little things that he wants you to do. And it's for your blessing and it's for the blessing of people around you. He may have been talking about your habits and your lifestyle. He may have been giving you little prompts, little thoughts of, about just making little one degree shifts in the way you live. You know, preparing a little bit the night before to be able to get up early, to have a little prayer time. Could be, I think you're watching a little bit too much Gogglebox. It's not helping. Or first dates. It's quite funny, isn't it? It could be that that iPlayer has got you. Or, or Netflix or Amazon Prime. It happens. Could be you're drinking too much, eating too much. Could be you need to get some exercise. It could be you need to get into the Bible because you haven't done that for ages. God will have been prompting you about little things. All sorts of stuff. But how you speak to people. How you deal with your kids. How you deal with your parents. So, it may be that opening that conversation about faith with somebody. It may be giving to a project. You've been stirred to give to something. It may be saying sorry to a family member. Actually, there's a, a hatchet to bury somewhere. There's a live issue in your family or amongst your friends, and you've got to take the initiative to go and say sorry. 
It may be something bigger, a change of a career, or to step out in faith on a new dream. Don't despise it or dismiss it because it seems small to you. Because God works with the small things. You don't know what God's got planned further down the road. Our job is to be faithful to the small invitations and to let him do the rest in good time. So, what small thing is God asking you to do or to trust him for today? Just have a think for a moment. Let's just ask the Holy Spirit just to put something on our minds. Lord, you do speak to us. You're a God who speaks. Lord, sometimes we drown your voice with all our activity, our busyness and our distractions. But somewhere underneath all the noise, our spirits do know often what you're saying to us. So Lord, I pray that you just bring that up from the depths. Everything that we've suppressed, not wanted to hear maybe, or things that were once buzzing within us as exciting ideas that God has given us. But something has happened in between then and now and we've allowed those ideas to die a little bit. And there, maybe there's some things that are even very close to being rejected. They're just hanging by a thread. Dreams that you had long ago that seem so implausible now. Just bring whatever you want to talk to us about to the surface, I pray God. Lord, however things are in our lives, I thank you that they, can, they remain alive in you and you can breathe life into old ideas, into old callings. You, it says, we've talked about it today, you love to bring the death, dead back to life and you love to create something out of nothing. So give us faith, I pray, and courage to be able to look at the things you're saying to us. And I felt that we could respond in three ways. We can, be, we can respond by, by pledging to be open to his prompts. We can say from this point forward, I want to be attentive. I want to be attentive. I want to be ready. I want, when you're looking around the countryside of the South Hams for somebody that will help you with something, I want you to spot me. I want to be the Mary in the nativity story. I want to be the one that you just spot and you think, yep, they'll do it. And I know because they're my friend. Some of us need to return to the last invitation. What did you do with the last clear thing that God told you to do? It may be that God won't give you anything else until you go back and do the thing that he asks you to do. Or that he'll be silent for a long time because he's waiting for you to respond because he knows that that's what you need to move on in your life. So it may be that you need to re return to the last invitation and start making progress with that. And then ponder and proceed. That's what Mary did. She pondered these things in her heart. She allowed the things that were said, the things that had been sown into her, her heart by the words of the angel and others, she allowed them to, to stay alive within her, to ponder them over, to chew, them on, chew on them and to meditate. And she also took steps. She took steps to, to uh, see that the plan of God could come to fruition. She went to see uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth because she knew that they were people of faith that would help her on the journey as well. 
So ponder and proceed. Get on with it. Whatever God has asked you to do, get on with it. Take courage because God knows the detail. So those are three ways that we, I believe we could really respond to this message. So we're going to move into a time of communion. But before we do that, I just want to linger here just for a second. I mean, if you could all stand. Let's get to our feet. And let's just, let's just pray. Because I believe God will be bringing stuff to the surface. Father, we just come before you now as people who, I believe all of us, all of us here delight to do your will. We want to be in the center of your purposes. We want to be those who have heard from you in our lifetimes and responded to you in our lifetimes. We want to, we want to meet you one day face to face knowing that we were attentive to your word and we were obedient. We were those who you could trust we were those who had truly learned to trust and obey. Lord, we want to be those who have the delight of seeing your kingdom come in ways that are far beyond our natural ability. Lord, to be able to be involved in your purposes, as weak and as insignificant as we can be sometimes. We want to be involved in something far bigger than ourselves. And we want to play our part in a way that makes you proud. We want to hear that well done, good and faithful servant. But we confess, Lord God, that sometimes we can be faithless. We can lament our weaknesses. We can waste time looking at how impossible things are and looking at ourselves and saying we're not the right choice. Lord, we can be slow to act. We can be wonderful at procrastination. Lord, but we just bring how we are and how we can be before you. And we ask you, Lord, to forgive us for ways that we've been slow to respond. And we say thank you once again for everything that you've said to us, everything you've prompted us with, Lord, in the past. And I want to ask, Lord, that right now you would just increase our sensitivity to your prompts. Lord, to the things you've already said and the new things that you're going to say. Lord, I pray that we would be switched on to what you have to say to us. I pray that we'd be a people that don't despise small beginnings. When you, start, when you come with your, your word to us, of this is the way, walk in it, just do this, go here, do that. Lord, I just pray, Heavenly Father, that in that moment we, wouldn't, we would stop ourselves from rejecting it because it's small or insignificant or we can't see the point. Make us those obedient servants that, that just do it anyway because we sense you might be saying it. Lord Jesus, increase our courage and our conviction to do that. Father, help us to, to be ready. Lord, to be those who daily make the choice. If God prompts me, I'm going to act. Lord, not just a once, every now and again decision, oh, I hope I will be better this time. But daily, help it to be, make it a decision in each of us to be responders to your prompts. Lord God. Lord, if there are things that are precious to you that we need to resurrect of plans and purposes that we've allowed to die or to grow cold. 
Lord, I pray that this Christmas would be a time where you bring those things back to the fore and breathe new life into them. Give us another shot, God. Give us a second chance. Lord, we don't want to feel like we've missed the boat. So I pray that you'd lead us back into your purposes. And help us, Lord, when we know what you want us to do. Help us to ponder, to, to think about the things that you've said, and to share them with people of faith that will build us up and support us as we get going. And Lord, would you give us the courage to step out in faith and to make those hard decisions that are going to cost us. And we want to see your kingdom come and your will done on the earth as it is in heaven. Amen. 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 Do take your seats. We're going to go into a time of communion now. But just, just to give us a, little, a few moments just to process some of the preach and just to prepare our hearts for communion. I'm going to ask Tristan just to come up and lead, and the band, if there's band members here, just to come and lead us in a song of preparation. And as part of this, there, there was something I mentioned earlier in my preach, which was to do with forgiving somebody. And if you've got anything to forgive anyone, use this song to ask God to, to give you that forgiveness for that person and just let them go because it's really important we come to the communion table with clean hands and pure hearts having forgiven as Christ forgives us. So let's take a little bit of time just to reflect, just to, uh, to listen to the words of this song and then we're going to go into communion together.